And let's pray together. Lord, we bless you. We honor you. We praise you tonight. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing your praise. As we pray so often, Lord, but I never tire of it. Thank you for being the God that you are. There's nothing we would change about you. And Lord, the older we get and the deeper we go in our relationship with you, the more we appreciate you for the God that you are exactly. We thank you that you're a perfect match for our need, Lord. We thank you that you're bigger than everything and anything and everything that we will ever face or we are facing tonight. Thank you that you really are a refuge and a stronghold, a place to hide in, Lord, and to be strengthened and to be encouraged. We thank you, Lord, that you are not only the God that you are, but that you have made a way through the death of your Son for you to become our God and for us to have a personal relationship with you. Thank you for your commitment to that relationship. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in that relationship this week in our lives. And, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight through your word. Thank you for your word, Lord. Speak to us. By your Holy Spirit, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And let's turn to Psalm 92. Tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and currently in the book of Psalms, it's Psalm 92. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just get their attention, they'll get a Bible into your hands, and then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everyone to own a Bible, make that Bible a gift to you tonight. Well, I was very encouraged by Matt's uh, mistake. I've, I've done worse, much worse. But, you know, there may be something to that kind of ministry. Just open the door, shout John 3.16. It's a completely captive audience. John 3.16, out you go, and there you are in less than 20 seconds. Who knows what the Lord might do. And then we'll hear a testimony one day. It was the craziest thing. I was at the mall. <laughs> Minding my own business. And I heard a voice quoting John 3.16. And for the first time it penetrated my heart. I mean, God, you, you, know, you talk about people's testimonies. They're crazier than that for how the Lord breaks through our hearts. Psalm 92 begins, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And that is the theme of the psalm, and just a simple, pure statement of the psalmist. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. And the reason it's a good thing to give the Lord thanks 
and to offer up praises to Him is because there's always a cause in our life for giving praise to Him and giving Him thanks. And so uh, because He is the God that He is, because He blesses us the way that He is, it's only appropriate that He then receives thanksgiving and praise because of the blessings He brings to our lives. And in case we need some help remembering the kind of significant blessings that He brings into our lives, the psalmist then spends the rest of the psalm, verse 2 through verse 15, kind of laying out some of the things that we have to be thankful for, these various things that enter into uh, the psalmist's minds. It would be interesting if we were to uh, have the time and the inclination to kind of give a microphone and have it begin in one end of the room and work it all the way all the way through the whole room and ask individual people what it is that they are most thankful for uh, related to the Lord tonight. And what a broad diversity of things would get expressed. You'd think, well, this person was thankful for this. I'd have never thought of that. And then this person is thankful for these two or three things. And all of us are so different. We think so different. We're in a a place where God is working in our lives in a way that is different from maybe working in somebody else's life. And so here's this snapshot of the psalmist. He's overwhelmed with gratitude for how God has blessed him. And so he begins, he offers thanks to the Lord and then lets us in on the things that he feels thankful for. And of course, they're the same things for us. He says, to declare your loving kindness in the morning. So he thanks God for the loving kindness that he supplies to his children every single morning. And that is to be kind of the morning expectation that fills our heart, that fills our mind, the theme that fills our mind as a child of God as we head out into the day that what awaits us for the rest of this day, what we are going to run into all through the day is God's loving kindness. In every circumstance and every difficulty, God is going to show His grace, His mercy, His loving kindness to us. Now that's that's quite a way to um, begin the day. So uh, what's the old joke? I've, I'm off the top of my head. I, I kind of forget it. But uh, the guy was uh, asked if he ever wakes uh, in the morning, if he ever wakes up grumpy. He says, oh, no, I let her sleep till 10 o'clock. <laughs> you can flip that around, the gender, just so nobody's... Uh, offended in this hypersensitive uh, environment of the United States of America today. But it is a good thing. Not everybody pops out of bed in the morning, hey! There are people like that, and, uh, but others are a little bit, um, they, <laughs> they don't even know that they're alive till they've dragged into the kitchen, you know, and they get the pot of coffee going, they take that first sip, and then they realize... It's another day's begun. <laughs> and so they, they, a lot of people head into a day expecting the worst, dreading the worst. Can I say very uh, gently but very firmly, that is to begin the day in a way that's unworthy of our God. I don't say to condemn. This is food for thought. In the light of His 
loving kindness. Our feet should never hit the floor at the side of the bed and go, oh, no, another day in the old rat race. We'll see what happens today. No, we're going to meet loving kindness all day, every day. Whatever the world does or doesn't do, it's the mess that it is. But God's loving kindness is going to be a sure thing for us, and it's greater than anything that we will face. I remember uh, hearing from a very good source, by the way, and uh, I forget whether I, um, I might have heard Pastor Chuck Smith say it, but I've heard it said of him that when he begins the day every day, he begins it expecting God to bless him that day. Pastor Chuck is in his mid-80s. He's been at this for a while. But I thought to myself, that is something to really think about and consider. To begin a day as a Christian with the expectation, God is going to bless me today. Now, that's worthy of the blessing God that Gail spoke about last Sunday night that we serve And so he's thankful here, the psalmist is, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night. So we lay our head down on the pillow at the end of the day and we look back and what do we have to give thanks for, if for nothing else, to the faithfulness of God. You say, how do you know he was faithful? Because you're putting your head on the pillow and you're still alive. But even more than that for us as Christians, every night we can go to bed, look back on the day, and see the fingerprints of God's faithfulness in our lives. There is so much to be thankful for. And when we do end the day, say, Lord, praise you for your faithfulness. I don't think I noticed all of it, but I noticed some of it. And I thank you for it uh, tonight. And then he tells us, that a senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. And so just for that uh, thankfulness that we have to the Lord uh, for his... uh, um, uh, Oh, I've jumped way down, haven't I? Okay. In verse 3, this is what... what, Because it involved instruments. On an instrument of ten strings on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. So he wants to offer praise up that way. For you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. And so he's, he's basically talking about God's creation, morning and evening. That's the context. Just thanking God. Thank you, Lord, for the sunrise. Thank you, Lord, for the sunset. Thank you, Lord, for the creation that's all around me that I got to enjoy for the whole day. Again, I try to remember off the top of my head that great saying concerning the sunrise and a sunset, that if it only happened, if the sunrise or a sunset only happened once every thousand years, everybody would line up to watch it. But because they happen every single day, we lose our awe over them. All the things that are truly meaningful in life, all the greatest gifts in life are free. And that sunrise and that sunset and everything in between them is a gift from God, the beauty of His creation, even as fallen as the world might be. And so He gives the Lord thanks for His creation. 
And then in uh, verse 5, how great, uh, O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. And now we get to it. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. So he thanks God for his works and for his thoughts, for his wisdom. Where would we be without God's wisdom and without his revelation and his word? We wouldn't know anything. We wouldn't know how we got here. We wouldn't know why we're here. We wouldn't know why he created us. We wouldn't know the meaning and the purpose of life, which would then condemn us to a meaningless and purposeless life, emptiness and frustration. All of the things, if you, if you don't even factor in God's power, you just look at him in the light of his wisdom, it produces a need to say thanks to him. The quality of our life lived just because of the wisdom and the revelation he gives to us in his word. And that's, that, that is to say nothing of the greatest revelation of all that he gives, and that is how to be saved, revelation concerning his Son. And so he praises the Lord for his thoughts, that they are very deep. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. And uh, But you, Lord, are on high forevermore, for behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. So he's thanking the Lord for this. Lord, I thank you that I do not live my life in the context of the wicked or the unrighteousness, that you have delivered me out of that. And that's something to give the Lord thanks for. And you think about the quality, again, quality of life that we live as Christians because we're in relationship with the Lord and He has pulled us out of our Egypt, out of our sin, out of our bondage and brought us into this fabulous life that we get to enjoy. And so just praising the Lord for delivering, uh, Him delivering, God delivering His life uh, from living a wicked life, living a sin-filled life, and then also to be delivered from the judgment that is going to come upon the wicked. Isn't it something to think about that? I I wake up every single day, I live my life every single day, and I never give a single thought to ever being judged by God in terms of eternal judgment. I don't fear him. I mean, I fear him in the good sense in which I have great respect and reverence for him. But I don't fear that one day I'm going to be judged and end up in the wrong side of things in eternity. All the big, all the big things have been settled in our lives as Christians. He said, but my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. And a horn in the scriptures speaks of power. It's a symbol of power. And so he's praising the Lord for the power that God has given to him. We praise the Lord for the power of the Holy Spirit that he brings into our lives. He says, I have been anointed with fresh oil. And again, oil is very much a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. And so he's, he's praising the Lord the way that we would look at it for the fact that we can receive a fresh filling 
of the Holy Spirit for power and for comfort and for joy and for all the fruit of the Holy Spirit anytime we want to ask God for that refilling with the Holy Spirit. Now, how precious is it? What dollar amount would you put on that? <laughs> you know, I mean, was it, um, is it Superman that goes into the phone booth? I get, I get all of my superheroes so mixed up. But you think about that. Any time, day or night, any time we have need, we can stop and ask God to freshly refill us with God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit, and God will do it. It's just me, little old Damien Kyle, just A's and B's at Napa High School. I got my G, my... AA degree, my little two-year degree at Napa College, just a nobody. And any time I want to, I can stop and ask God to refill me with His Holy Spirit in the light of the circumstances that, that I am in. And He cares enough about little old anonymous me that He will do that. And it's true related to all of our lives. So much to be thankful for. He said, my eye has also has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. He says, the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. And a palm tree, we look and we say, well, boy, I'm, what's a palm tree? Seems kind of dry and all of that. But a palm tree in that Middle Eastern culture, that was a fruit-bearing tree. So the psalmist, it's his way of saying that the righteous, this life, praise the Lord, thank you, God, that I get to live a righteous life. Only you could make that possible. And you've made my life to flourish like a palm tree, the dates and the, and, and the fruitfulness of it. And he shall grow, speaking of the righteous, and what we have to be thankful for, like a cedar in Lebanon. And in the Scriptures, the cedars of Lebanon are a picture of stability. God, you've brought a stability into my life that I've never known. You have no idea how unstable I am apart from God. You know why I know that? You attend this church. Before I knew the Lord and, and all, <laughs> talk about a fragmented person. And the Lord has brought stability into our lives, made us something into, into something altogether different than what we lacked in the natural in our being descendants of Adam and Eve. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon, and those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Thanking the Lord for fellowship. That's a place you can put your roots down. He's using imagery here, a palm tree and a cedar of Lebanon. Where can we put our roots down in this world that will get nourishment, that will produce this kind of life? a stable life, an immovable life, a fruitful life, down into the things of God that are found in the house of the Lord. And then he speaks of further blessings. They shall bear fruit in old age. It's a funny old thing. There's not, there's not much that gets better with old age. I like that description in the Old Testament. Well, that Remember the one king who uh, came to David in Jerusalem before he fled 
the rebellion of, of Absalom and he came to visit with David and he was loyal to David and supplied food to David and his family. And then when everything was over, the rebellion was put down. David invited him to come to Jerusalem and to be taken care of for the rest of his life. I mean, the ultimate social security to have a promise like that from a righteous king like David. And he said, no, he's a very elderly man. He said, no, he said, I, he said, I want to die in my homeland. And then he said, he said something like, you know, can I even taste food anymore? <laughs> His taste buds are shot. Just using way too much Tabasco his whole life. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that begin to deteriorate in, with, with the, the tent wearing out a little bit. But not a walk with God and not a life with God. It gets better and better and... We can still bear fruit in old age, and they shall be fresh and flourishing. And to declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. I hope, I hope everybody has a, an 85-year-old or a 75-year-old in your life that's walked with the Lord for a long time and can speak into your life and declare how good it's been to walk with the Lord all these years and to testify to how faithful He is. And what it makes us want to be if the Lord does give us that kind of longevity in this life to be that kind of person. We live in a culture that looks, that hides, it, 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 it um, um, kind of celebrates, and it, um, it, it, it's a youth-oriented culture, unlike most of the cultures of the world, except in the Western world. And so this kind of thing gets lost, this undervaluing of the older person. Most of the world isn't that way. But we're this crazy experiment that is kind of going bad at the moment because it's built on a lot of wrong things. But there's something wonderful about an older person. I mean, if a 12-year-old comes up to me and speaks to me about how faithful God has been and how wonderful it's been to walk with Him all these years, that's going to bless my heart without a doubt. But then you, get some, then you add 75 years to that and that person comes back to me at 87 and says the same thing. Now it's carrying a lot more weight. And so the psalmist, thankful to the Lord for the fact that this life with God gets better and it gets better and better and better uh, the older a person gets. And so this wonderful psalm, so much to be thankful for, uh, as a child of God, and that reminder of that. And then in verse uh, ni uh, Psalm 93, uh, it declares, The Lord reigns. And that's the, that's the theme of this psalm. It's a reminder and it's a celebration of the fact that the Lord reigns. Who do you think? Don't shout out. Who do you think reigns in the United States of America? And if your answer is anything other than God, that's the wrong answer. Who do you think reigns in the whole wide world? 
And if your answer is anything other than God, that's the wrong answer. The psalmist has it right. The Lord reigns. And that's the theme of this very important psalm. This psalm looks to be a celebration of God's uh, sovereignty and His almightiness that was demonstrated in bringing the children of Israel back into the land of Israel following the 70 years of their captivity uh, in Babylon. And so this is, this is the celebration that is going on. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. And to the psalmist, when the children of Israel went into captivity in Babylon for those 70 years, it looks like God took off His royal robe. It looked like the king wasn't reigning anymore. It looked like he had kind of abdicated the throne. But as soon as they were delivered from Babylon, brought back into the land, it, 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 he, the psalmist realizes, no, the Lord has always been in control and, he, and things have, uh, are, are manifestly, outwardly uh, showing what is actually the truth. He never ceased to be reigning even when we were in that, in that captivity. And then he say, speaks concerning the Lord. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. So he declares, God reigns. He is sovereign. He is in control. And there is nothing that is too difficult for God. Maybe some of us need to say that in our heart right now for what we're facing. There is nothing too difficult for God at all. And the psalmist said it, and sometimes we have a need to say it. He says, your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. And so this declaration that God's throne is everlasting. And so even though they had been disciplined by the Lord in Babylon, even though it seems as if he had abdicated the throne over, uh, uh, over Israel. In fact, he'd never ceased to sit upon the throne and just sovereignly directing his people, even though they were in the doghouse. He never abandoned them. And then he declares the Lord to be greater and mightier than any flood. He said, the floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves The Lord on high is mightier than those floods and those waves, than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. So there's floods in life, and the psalmist recognizes this. And he's not talking about physical floods, literal floods. Very often the movement, the instability of the Gentile world, the ungodly world, is likened to a flood in the Scriptures, because water is an unstable thing. It's an unpredictable thing. It's a moving kind of thing. And so the nations are oftentimes likened to a a flood. And that's the imagery that that is used. He says, additionally, I want you to notice there in verse 3 the the fact that they have lifted up their voice. And so there's this instability of the world, Gentile world all around the psalmist. We would say it would be the non-Christian world all around us. And there's all of this noise, all of this racket that's coming out of the ungodly population of, uh, of the world. 
And the psalmist is saying, no matter how noisy they get, no matter how boisterous they get, no matter how vocal they get, no matter how large a number they are, that they're not on the throne of the universe. God is on the throne of the universe, and His purposes are going to prevail, not man's purposes. God's greater than all of them, and it's good to be reminded of that. No matter how crazy it gets in the world, wild it gets in the world, unstable things get in the world, God is still reigning over whatever floods are occurring. And then he says in verse 5, Your testimony speaking to God, that is your word, are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, and it does so forever. In other words, he confesses to God that your word and your holiness is going to prevail upon the earth. Not the unholiness and the instability of the Gentile governments and nations all around us. Uh, Evil is not going to prevail. Man's opinions are not going to prevail. God's Word is going to prevail. Holiness is going to prevail. And so the psalm teaches us some very important things. It teaches us that the Lord reigns, and I want you to notice that's in the present tense right now. He reigns. He's sovereign. No matter how noisy the world becomes around us or how it shakes its fist at God. And and recently, just in the last few years, we see how the whole world, certainly in the country that we live in, how emboldened the wicked are, how emboldened the unrighteous are becoming. They sense a weakness in Uh, Christians, not in us individually, but a weakness in terms of how many of us there are and our influence within within the country. And so this movement, these things that are being said, I won't bore you with illustrations of it, though that'd probably be fascinating to hear some names that everybody knows. But the Lord doesn't uh, prevent opposition to Himself in the world, uh, but He triumphs over it. And that's the idea of the psalm. So just because God allows all that stuff to happen, it does not mean He is not in control and He won't prevail over it. God is up to... The big the picture that God is looking at in His decision-making and His governing of man and moving it toward His God-appointed end, there's so many facets to it. And we kind of can get one-dimensional. God, this happened, and what in the world, you know? And He's looking at it this big, and if we saw it as big as He sees it, we go, oh, I see it. I get why you're doing it that way. Hmm, right again. <laughs> My bad. You're right. And so the psalmist teaches us to trust in God's Word and not to fret or not to worry about man's rebellion. You say, why shouldn't I worry about man's rebellion? Because God isn't worried about man's rebellion. He's not in any kind of heart medication, high blood pressure medication at all. He is not worried that one single word that he has spoken about how all of this wraps up and what follows this uh, dispensation at this time. He knows how all of it is going to end. I like how Scroggy put it, uh, referencing his, his book on the Psalms a second time in our series through it. He said, he is calm who believes that God is sovereign. And that's the point of the psalm. 
is that we would recognize that God is sovereign and that that would produce peace within us. So reading the psalm, studying the psalm, if it hasn't produced peace within us, then it's kind of failed in what it's intended to do, not because of a failure related to the psalm, the failure on our part to allow it to do that kind of work. One of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible is in Acts chapter 26, where the Apostle Paul is brought before a great Roman body to be judged. He's been falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders uh, and... Uh, He has been ushered away to a city uh, on the Mediterranean coast by the name of Caesarea and imprisoned uh, under Roman authority. And they, they don't know what to charge him with because he hasn't broken any Roman law. It's a religious issue. And there's a Roman governor in that over Israel at that time uh, by the name of Festus. And he's got a king and a queen, a king by the name uh, of uh, Agrippa and then uh, his wife uh, Bernice, and they're visiting uh, Festus. And Festus begins to tell them all about this prisoner that they have. And Agrippa says, "Well, bring him out uh, tomorrow or the next day, and let's listen to what he is that he has to say." So you know, they didn't have television of these things, and this was something that was different and something to listen to—an educational process for King Agrippa. And so he wanted to hear the Apostle Paul. So they bring Paul into this room, and it's, it, it's a kind of a throne room there in, in Caesarea where hearings were conducted. And so here is Festus. He would sit upon his throne. Uh, King Agrippa is there. His wife Bernice is there. We're told very specifically in the passage that all of the prominent men uh, of Caesarea are in attendance. And so you just picture in your mind all of the colors, all of the majesties, all, all of the majesty, all of the banners, all of the fabrics, all of the amazing uh, architecture of that room because everything about that room was designed in order to intimidate whoever was brought before the Roman governor. That was the whole vibe. So that whoever came into that room, everything's elevated, everything is all of this, and then here you are, no matter who you are, this little tiny person in the grandeur of Rome and the Roman Empire. And it was designed to break a person, to intimidate a person. So they bring Paul in. <laughs> if you know the story, I mean, come on. They bring Paul in... And they asked Paul to make a defense concerning himself. And then this environment that's intended to completely intimidate, the apostle Paul walks in, he sees the throne, he sees the power, he sees the king, he sees the wife, he sees the governor. He is not intimidated, not one single bit. And as he looks at what's going on in that room, it's almost as if he says, I don't know what those people are all about and what they think this is all about, but I know what this is supposed to be all about. And he begins to preach the reasons for his faith in Jesus Christ as the promised Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world. 
And within a dozen sentences, he has changed the entire vibe of that room until everybody has this unsettled sense that the Apostle Paul is no longer the person who is on trial here, but he has put all of us on trial on the basis of what we do or do not do with Christ. And I ask myself, when I look at that scene, Where does that kind of a sanctified, respectful boldness come from in a man's life? That he can walk into an environment, a throne room, of the most powerful Roman official in the land and turn the whole room upside down and make it serve his purposes. And the reason is, is because the Apostle Paul lived his life in the context of the greater throne, the throne that is never vacated, that is never empty, the throne that is over all of man's thrones. Again, Paul walks into that scene and he realizes, I do not have to be about what this whole thing is about because I've come from the throne room of my God and received from Him the strength and the grace and the wisdom and direction to make this what He is about. And that's what the psalm is about the reminder to always see the greater throne behind all of the thrones of men. And the thrones of men can be very threatening, they can be very big, they can be very powerful, they can be very frightening and unstable. But authority does not end with them. There is a throne and a God who is greater than all of them. And then in Psalm 94, is a... Beautiful psalm that speaks of, beautiful in its own way, uh, speaks of vengeance, of God's vengeance. And it is Psalm 94 as a call for vengeance. The psalmist calls upon the Lord to uh, mete out vengeance against the wicked and against the ungodly. I'm going to mention it again. We've mentioned it in the past. But sometimes people, they have a problem with the fact that uh, God is a God who takes vengeance upon the wicked or upon the ungodly. And again, I'll repeat myself by contending that a person who has a problem with God exercising vengeance is a person who has not yet become, sufficiently become a victim of the wicked or the ungodly to such a degree that would then cause them to cry out for God to be a God of vengeance in a given situation. But apart from revival, the United States of America, there will be an exponential growth of wickedness and ungodliness and emboldened wickedness and uh, ungodliness. And these things that we thought that we were once above because we lived in this very uh, 
a, a, a culture and an environment that it does have a Judeo-Christian ethic and roots, a Bible roots. And so we've enjoyed the blessings of those all of these years, and we haven't lived in a part of the world where they wake up every day and simply because they're a Christian, they are persecuted and stolen from and beaten and robbed and murdered and raped simply for being Christians. And when you find yourself in that kind of place, then a psalm like Psalm 94 comes out where there is a legitimate cry for God to exercise vengeance against the wicked. The reason I think that vengeance sometimes gets a bad name even among Christians is because God tells us that we are not to exercise vengeance as Christians. Romans chapter 12 says that we are to repay evil with good. The Bible says, as we'll see in just a moment, we will get into the psalm, by the way, but the Bible says that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance belongs to Him. But just because God tells us that we are not to exercise vengeance against the wicked and the ungodly does not mean that vengeance is wrong. It means that we simply are not able to uh, wield that with, in a righteous way. We lack a knowledge base and we lack the wisdom to properly administer vengeance or judgment. You ever been in a situation where you said, man, if I had three wishes, I'll tell you, if I was a superhero, I would, this is what I'm telling you. And then, but you aren't a superhero. And you don't have three wishes. And you don't exercise vengeance in this situation. And you just wait until you see what God was doing. You say, God, thank you for not listening to me there. Man, I would have messed the whole thing up if I'd have taken this into my hands and I had exercised vengeance. Because we see later on that we lack the knowledge of the situation, all the nuances. There's this going. We're looking again at this narrow band, but then there's this that ties to this and somebody over here and six people over here and all of this. And then one day we realize, wow, that was the picture that God was working with and I'm just looking at it because somebody hurt my feelings and I wanted God to blow up the whole earth. And say, right, I, don't ha- I do not have the base of knowledge. I don't have the omniscience. And I do not have the wisdom to exercise vengeance. And neither do you. But God does. And just because we are not to exercise it does not mean that it is a bad thing. Because one day God, God does exercise vengeance. And one day He will exercise vengeance on a worldwide scale that is called the Great Tribulation. So can it be a bad thing if God does it? O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, and the idea is Him and Him alone, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Lord, we need some vengeance around here. (laughs) Ever felt that way? Well, he felt that way. Much of the world feels that way too. Rise up, O God of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? And so here's this call upon God to hurry up, 
God's being too patient or call upon God to judge the wicked and judge the proud. And then he speaks about the wickedness uh, of, of the, the wicked and the proud. They utter speech and they speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. Lord, they're saying all kinds of things that are ungodly and nonsense and boasting in themselves. And then he goes on further to speak of their sins. They break in pieces your people, O God. Now, that's one thing to see it right there on the page in front of us. They break in pieces. You say, oh, I hope that's poetic speech. I hope that isn't true. I hope that doesn't happen. But it does happen. And it happens to God's people all over the world tonight. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and they afflict your heritage. So not only are these wicked and proud persecuting God's people, but he goes on to say, they slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. In other words, they were attacking the most vulnerable within society. Again, you take, you take the influence of the Holy Spirit through His people and through His Word in a nation. You remove that. You kill all the Christians in a country. And the next thing you know, you're just going to be murdering people who are powerless. You're going to be abusing them in ways that you can't imagine because you've got a darkness now there. You've lost a salt and a light and a restraint. And so here they are taking advantage of the most powerless and the most vulnerable within the land. And yet they say, the Lord does not see, nor does the hand uh, God of Jacob understand. There's no fear of God before them. Understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, as the psalmist right speaks to these foolish and to speak to these proud. He says, understand, you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nations, shall he not correct? Do you think the God who made eyes can't see? <laughs> Think he made something greater than himself? Can you make something greater than yourself? Can even God make something greater than himself? Do you think the God who creates ears cannot hear, he says to the wicked, what you're saying? And he who instructs the nations shall not correct. He who teaches man, he who teaches man's knowledge. Can't he instruct? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, man, that they are futile, that is, that they are empty. God is going to judge you, the psalmist is saying, to the wicked. And then he declares the blessings that are found in obeying God's Word. Blessed is the man in whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. And so here's this, the psalmist says, for all the problems that are ours, because we walk faithfully with you, God, there's still no life that compares to this.
It's the greatest life. And yes, the recognition that judgment is going to come on this earth. And it is going to come on this earth. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? And who will rise up for me against the workers of iniquity? He said, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul would have settled in silence. If I say, my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up in the multitude of my anxieties. Now, that's an honest man. You know, once I had a, once I was, uh, uh, had a little crisis of faith, and for five minutes I had a little anxiousness about a situation I was in. Now, that's somebody that's not being real. Look at the psalmist. In the multitude of my anxieties within me. Let's be honest about it. Your comforts delight my soul. And so thanking the Lord for His help and His grace. Shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood, but... And the word but is very important here. In contrast to all of that, the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. So the Lord is greater than all of them. And He has brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. And the Lord shall, the Lord our God shall cut them off. So this beautiful psalm, uh, of hope in the coming vengeance of God or in the coming judgment of God. The Bible talks about before the rapture of the church, the condition of the world. It's not after. It's going to be worse after the rapture. But before the rapture, it's going to be a bit of a mess. And when the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 concerning the hope, that is found in the rapture, he said, comfort one another with these words. Comfort yourself in the knowledge that at any moment the Lord could return and remove us from this earth before before he pours out his vengeance and his judgment upon a world that is rejecting him and in their wickedness and in their pride. And what that tells me is that even before the rapture of the church, we will reach a place individually as Christians, Calvary Chapel of Modesto, Shelter Cove, wherever you want to go in town, and then out throughout the region and through the state and through all around the world, there will come a day where the lone source of hope and the light of the advancement of wickedness and unrighteousness will be He is coming back to remove us from the midst of all of this before He pours out His vengeance. Now that's quite a thing to end a sermon on, isn't it? But it's the truth. And it's something that we need to realize. But at the same time to realize this, concerning every single one of us that knows the Lord, We have been hand-chosen by God to live in this hour. I don't know that the Lord will come back in my lifetime. I could get hit by a truck tomorrow. 
or Mark Carson could beat me to death with one of those puppets tomorrow. So I don't know how long I have, or any of us, we don't know how long. I don't say the Lord is coming next week or what. He could come before the night is over. But there's that recognition that whatever this season in man's history is all about, we've been hand-chosen by God to live in this season for His glory. And it is certainly not a bad thing. It is a wonderful thing. The opportunity that lies before us as Christians, we can get a terminal case of the ain't awfuls over what's happening in the advancement of darkness morally and spiritually in our country and around the world. And that's real. And anybody who looks at things and sees without a sovereign work of God where this thing is going to go, this is a really big deal. This country has turned a corner, in case you haven't noticed. And if you think the proud and the wicked are going to be as nice to you and me as we were to them while they gain power, then you don't know the proud and you don't know the wicked. But the darker the world gets, the brighter the life of Christ inside of us Becomes. And those aren't just words. When you see a person live a different kind of life, possess a different kind of peace, a different kind of meaning to their life, a different kind of freedom from sin, a joy that is found nowhere else but in Christ, our lives will become more attractive and different than ever to the right kind of person that God is going to bring into His kingdom. And so it's the two-edged sword that goes on. Yes, things are getting darker, but it just means that Christ in us is going to be seen in a more profound and beautiful way to where, and we should always speak with our lips. Sometimes people say, whatever that old saying is, I'm bringing up all kinds of things that I haven't looked up. Um, tonight. But that thing of, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. That's a nonsensical statement, but people use it because it sounds really profound. The gospel is intended to be preached. (laughs) I'm saved tonight because somebody opened their mouth up and they shared the gospel with me. You're saved tonight because somebody opened up their mouth and they shared the gospel. It wasn't like a mind thing. Okay, keep, keep going. I haven't got to figure it out yet. <laughs> they got my attention, and then somebody shared the gospel with me. So we all know, always want to be sharing the gospel. But the power that our lives are going to have when the advancement of the kingdom of God is the most important thing to us is going to be very, very exciting and very, very powerful. What a privilege it is to live this different kind of life for God's glory and for the good 
of the rest of the world. Because the only reason you and I sit in this room tonight is because the fullness of the Gentiles is not complete yet. For all of their pride, all of their wickedness, all of their nonsense, just like us when we were in the kingdom of the world, there are more people to be saved. Otherwise, we'd have been raptured out of here a long time ago. And we want everybody to be saved and everybody has a right to know. So it isn't a gloomy thing. It isn't a bad thing. God is up to something good. He's up to something very, very beautiful. And this is the greatest life going. Is it like, okay, hunker down and, and just... Nothing against the Huns. We've been made for this hour, for such a time as this. I wouldn't say this is going to be fun, but I will say this is going to be very exciting and it's going to be very interesting to see what God has in mind both in what He's going to do in us and then what He's going to do through us. Well, I'd like the worship team to come up, and I'd like to close, before we close, to have them lead us in a couple of worship songs. To just